because of my disability, having one arm, I was still able to do pretty much everything. So that I felt created a bit of a disconnect for me within the disability community. I felt as though I could do everything. So I felt perhaps I was a fraud within that community. And I was told that in, in by some people as well. So here I am again thinking, I don't know where I fit. I certainly have struggles, physical and mental and emotional well-being struggles, but I don't feel as though they're the same as somebody else who has a disability that is perhaps more severe than me. So what do I do? Where do I fit? I don't want to be speaking on behalf of everyone that has a disability. But then I discovered or you know, realized that my journey is my journey and I'm not here to compare that with anybody else and my struggles are very real but I also have a responsibility to share with the world that just because I live with a disability it doesn't mean that I have to limit myself and it doesn't mean that I have to accept the way that society and the world views me. This is The Metal Set. Hi, this is Dawn, an ultra cyclist and sports PR specialist. And I'm Afshan, an endurance athlete and journalist. And we're on a quest to bring you stories of tenacity, courage and metal. From athletes in the Middle East and beyond. Former Paralympian Jessica Smith joins us today for a very honest discussion on diversity and inclusion for people with disabilities. As an elite swimmer who went on to represent Australia in the 2004 Paralympic Games in Athens, Jessica, like her peers, faced immense pressure to perform at the highest level, yet wasn't afforded the same and much-needed psychological, financial and infrastructural support given to able-bodied athletes. Having to retire at 22 to address her struggles with eating disorders and focus on her mental and physical well-being, the athlete came out on the other side a loud, strong and resolute voice for disability awareness, diversity and inclusion. She was awarded the Order of Australia Medal for her outstanding achievement and service towards these causes. As a co-founder of Touch, a talent management and inclusivity consultancy, which she set up after moving to Dubai in 2019, Jessica has furthered her cause and currently works to provide opportunities to athletes with disabilities and leads important discussions on how society should think about effective inclusion and diversity. In this episode, Jessica takes us into conversations on inclusion that are rarely spoken about, like the mental health battles that go beyond the physical disability that athletes navigate. She opens up about how she did not want to talk about her true journey of finding and losing her identity to swimming and then regaining it once she moved away. But once she embraced it, made her story resonate with many more people and has been making a difference. Jessica's insights into how we start the conversation around inclusivity and diversity are good pointers for any industry. We hope you take away as much as we have from this chat. Let's get into it. Jessica, welcome to the show. Uh, what an honor to have a former Paralympian with us today. It's, Thank you. it's really amazing to have you on the show. And Thank I think our so first much. Australian guest as well. <laughs> oh, even better. I'm excited <laughs> about that. So we started this platform out of a need, I guess, for better representation in sports, you know, for various groups, professional athletes and the sporting ecosystem. And we're going to be 
diving into diversity and inclusivity today with your own journey and also as your role as an ambassador for disability awareness and positive body image through your other initiatives and your company, Touch, as well. Yeah, perfect. I'm really excited to be able to sort of delve into this a little bit more and share a little bit about my story. So the issue of inclusion, of course, is something that you've had to address time and time again, right, ever since childhood. So take us back to your childhood and what it was like growing up and how you got into sports. Tell us a little bit about that. So I was born missing my left arm and to this day we still don't know why that happened. It was just one of those things. But the the doctors and the professionals sort of advised my parents to have me fitted with a prosthetic limb from as young as possible. So I was fitted with my first fake arm at around 18 months of age. And then unfortunately, I suffered a horrific accident in the kitchen. I used my prosthesis to grab a biscuit from the kitchen bench. But at the same time, I pulled the kettle down, which had just been boiled. So I spilt uh, boiling water onto myself and sustained third degree burns to about 15% of my body. And so growing up, missing my arm and having very prominent scarring on my neck and chest, you know, I was very aware that I was different, you know, because I was pointed at, I was stared at, I was laughed at by other kids, by other adults, which is even worse. And so my entire childhood was trying to understand the the complexities of my own identity and knowing that I looked different but wanting to be the same as everybody else and Mm -hmm. trying to understand why that wasn't happening. And so for me, I wanted to push against the the limitations that I felt society was putting on me around my appearance. You know, I had people telling me that I wouldn't be able to do stuff in life, I wouldn't be able to achieve a lot and that I would have body image issues. And so I remember thinking that I didn't feel that within myself. How could I prove to everybody that I was more than my disability? I was more than what I looked like. And for me, the obvious way to do that was to use my body. And what I mean by that is through, you know, playing with my younger brothers when I was growing up, kicking the footy, climbing trees. And the natural progression for me was into sport. And obviously growing up in Australia, it's a very, you know, sporting culture. It made sense for me to to do those things and to be involved in those activities. And so sport gave me an opportunity to allow even myself to go beyond the barriers and the perceived limitations of what somebody with a disability could or couldn't achieve. Mm. And I remember falling in love with swimming from around the age of 10. I won my first school swimming race, beating all the girls and boys with two hands. And in that moment, I felt for the first time as though I was being acknowledged and and validated for what I could do rather than what people thought I couldn't do. And I remember saying to my mum and dad, you know, I want to swim forever, whatever that looked like. Or, you know, we, we weren't even aware of the Paralympics at that point. You know, it wasn't about doing this to sort of win or achieve anything. It was just how it made me feel in that moment and the way that I felt society and the community around me and the people that were there observing that day saw something different. You know, they saw what someone was able to achieve. And so it was that sort of moment which was defining in my childhood that then led me into this whole world of of sport and using that as an opportunity to elevate myself and other people that have a disability into a different conversation and different perspective around what we can achieve and can't achieve based on our appearance and and our abilities. So that sort of is how it all all began. And what age did you start swimming, you said? So competitively, well, that that first swimming race at school was 10. 
And then I was selected onto my first Australian swimming team at the age of 13. So it happened quite rapidly and I was very, very young. And I continued to represent Australia for about seven or eight years. And it was an incredible experience, you know, being able to travel the world and meet other people who had a disability that were on that same trajectory Mm -hmm. in becoming an elite athlete. But it was also a very challenging time because society wasn't ready for that. Mm -hmm. And society didn't see athletes with a disability as being elite. It was very hard to sort of combine the two. And there was a lot of conversation that revolves around the fact that, okay, you have a disability and you're participating in sport, therefore you must be going to the Paralympic Games. Mm -hmm. It was as if that that's just what happened rather than, well, hang on, there's athletes that are training very, very, very hard, the same as able-bodied athletes Mm -hmm. in order to get to the pinnacle of their sport. And so I found that to be really, really difficult because I was putting in just as much, if not more, time and energy because I didn't have the scholarships, I didn't have the funding or the sponsorship to be able to fund the training that was needed while I was studying. So I had to do all of that and do the training and all of those hours in and out of the pool to be able to get the results that I wanted. And when you have society that isn't quite there in that conversation around disability and diversity and inclusion, it can and it did make it very, very difficult. So I found that my motivation for swimming changed a lot throughout those years. It it was obviously what I wanted to do, but there was also me trying to prove a point mm-hmm. to everybody else. And it sort of came to, I guess, a crescendo moment at the end of my career where I realized I was no longer doing it for me. Mm-hmm. I was trying to do it for everybody else. And mm-hmm. I fell out of love with the sport yeah. by that point. Yeah. Just taking a couple of steps back, you talked about, you know, kind of running around with your siblings and we know how important, you know, family is in that. And especially in the context of, you know, you're saying other children are, you know, commenting, even adults, like, which is unfathomable when you think about it. But did your parents ever kind of, were they always very supportive and say, of course, you can do whatever you want. How was the support system at home to get you into sports? My parents were very supportive. They were of the mindset that nobody was going to feel sorry for myself. So I wasn't allowed to feel sorry for myself either. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it really did help shape how I saw the world. And it gave me the confidence and the self-esteem to try before making excuses for what I thought I might not be able to do. So it was very much a tough love approach. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes they practice that to the extreme. <laughs> um, but I realize now that they were helping me or preparing me for the big wider world. Yeah. You know, like right? the tough exterior. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, it, was, it wasn't as if they were sort of on the sidelines at the swimming pool, you know, morning and night, but they were there to take me. You know, my dad drove me to, to all my training sessions and to all the competitions. They were very much supportive, but at the same time, it wasn't as if um, it was a be-all and end-all. But I think they could see that it was something that was giving me a level of, of confidence that I wasn't able to find when I was away from the swimming pool, whether that be because I was able to connect with other athletes that had a disability for the first time. You know, I, I, I wasn't really around disability myself growing mm-hmm. up. So it was as if it was another family, another um, opportunity to feel as though I belonged somewhere. So they could see that that was benefiting me as well, not just obviously the sport and the benefits that that has for any um, individual. So it, it was very, very supportive. And I think that, you know, they did everything that they possibly could to ensure that the opportunities that were there I was able to make happen or take advantage of. 
Mm-hmm. When you started swimming, you said once you got into the water, you said that this was love for you at first swim, right? And you told your parents that this is what you would want to do for the rest of your life, but then you fell out of it. What were the circumstances leading to that and what was the coping mechanism leading to that because I'm guessing once you started training at a more professional level, the pressures started mounting. People expected things of you, but the infrastructure wasn't there, the resources weren't there. So what was the coping mechanism for that? And where's your love for swimming now? It's a really good question. So I think when I was younger, I was very much oblivious to a lot of things as well, even my own thoughts and feelings around how I felt I fit in within society and swimming itself was at first the coping mechanism. Swimming gave me the opportunity to block out the rest of the world and everything that was going on. And so I loved it for that. And then as things started to progress and as I started to, you know, excel and opportunities, you know, to to travel around the world to represent Australia became more paramount and, you know, um, I was giving myself the opportunity to to do all of those things. I then realised that... I wasn't comfortable with the discrimination that was still taking place. For example, I remember being at a Australian National Swimming Championships and going up to the dais to collect my medal, and the medals for the athletes with a disability were smaller than the medals for the athletes without a disability. And I just remember thinking, why? I don't understand why you have to make such a profound statement like that. You know, it 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 shows less than, you know, for people with a disability. And so I was really, really struggling to not let those external factors impact my swimming. But unfortunately, they were. And I think also at the time, I was just a young teenage girl going Mm -hmm. through hormones, wanting to feel as though I fit in, wanting to feel as though I was popular and accepted. And puberty and everything that happens at that time. And because my body didn't look like what I saw in the magazines or in the media, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I didn't even have social media at that time, thank goodness. But I felt as though I wasn't represented anywhere. And I convinced myself that if I could have the perfect body in every other way, my arm wasn't going to grow back, my scars would always be there. But if I could control what I thought I could control, which was my weight, and have that at, you know, societal's, you know, ideal, you know, mould then maybe people would see past the obvious imperfections and maybe then I'd be accepted and maybe then I'd be happy. And so the coping mechanisms started to shift and I started to diet and before I knew it, I was in the hellish nightmare of bulimia and anorexia. And the guilt and the shame that was associated with that was so suffocating because I didn't feel that I could talk to anyone about it. And so I was living in this weird world of being able to be put on a pedestal in swimming and still competing and still achieving and doing really well, but behind closed doors, really, really suffering with my mental health and trying to understand why I just wasn't being accepted for who I was and the goals that I had to represent my country and to receive the same validation and and I guess accolade so I guess there was an external or an extrinsic component to that which you know can be argued wasn't the right thing and I and I shouldn't have been looking for all of that as as ways of motivation but I, but I did and because mm. it wasn't there you know I, that's when I started to internalize all of that and I wasn't good enough and I would never be good enough and so that's when that sort of eating disorder took hold 
But I, I kept that a secret for about a decade as well. So all throughout my swimming career, I was struggling with this and very, very few people knew because I was also able to mask that behavior mm-hmm. as part of being a really good athlete, right? So my strictness around dieting and training was seen as a good thing mm-hmm. and I was able to sort of pretend that it was even to myself and it was positive reinforcement yeah. exactly from that, yeah. exactly mm-hmm. and then you know it wasn't until the end of my career that it started to to really take hold and and it destroyed my swimming career and I was for, forced into early retirement at 21 and so you know it's not the fairy tale ending that I think a lot of people would assume that I had or that I think people make that assumption, especially for Paralympians. It's like, oh, they've already overcome so much with their disability. There can't be anything else that they've Mm. had to face. And therefore, there is a happy ending. And and even though my swimming career will always be such a treasured experience for me and I'm able to draw so many parallels from that and apply that to everything I do in my life today, it's it's a different experience. There wasn't a gold medal at the Mm -hmm. Paralympic Games and there should have been, but there wasn't. And so being able to verbalize that and and have that as part of my story was very painful at the beginning. But now I understand that that's that's who I am and I have to be proud of that journey because otherwise I wouldn't be here speaking with you, lovely ladies. Having battled with eating disorders myself as a teenager, growing up with it and, and as an adult managing it because that's what you do, I do like a lot of what you said in that regards resonates with me. And I think I feel like one of the salient perpetrators of often eating disorder is the fear of losing control, like losing control of your body, losing control of what people think about you, your identity. How did sports factor into that or did it take away from that? And, you know, how did you find yourself in that entire situation as far as control was concerned? For me, it was very much enmeshed and I wasn't able to see that until after I retired, but everything was compounding each other. And by that, I mean the the positive reinforcement of being strict around my behaviors told me that I was doing something good, that it wasn't something bad, something that I, you know, lived in denial with for, for many, many years. But then it was realizing that in order for me to heal and to actually delve into recovery, I had to walk away from everything at that moment that was related to my swimming career and sport so it was the people it was the coach and and my coach was fantastic probably the biggest supporter that I ever had through this journey but it was him that said you know if you don't cut ties now and take another path this won't end up you know um where I want it to be and so that was soul destroying because swimming was my identity. It was all I had ever known. And I didn't want to walk away from that and just be a girl with a disability because I knew how society viewed somebody with a disability. And and to me, that was more painful than living with an eating disorder and the lies and the guilt and everything, even though my career was starting to, to plummet as well in the pool, mm-hmm. that seemed more of a safety net than walking away from that and having to confront everything else. So, I mean, I suppose the the irony is that as much as I felt that I was in control, my eating disorder was in control of me, and you know, and, and, and that's that's never the case. But, yes, that's the, I felt as though I was only able to control those components when everything else around me was falling apart, but it wasn't that way at all. You know, it, the eating disorder was controlling me and it, it got to the point where, I could no longer live that way. Mm-hmm. You know, they say like, what is it? Shame exists, you know, in secrecy yeah. and hidden away. 
you know, now there's a lot more conversations about, you know, disordered eating and eating disorders. And I think all of us having grown up maybe in a bit of a similar generation, like there was a lot of focus as well, like mm. for me and food and stuff. And I know I haven't had an eating disorder, but definitely disordered eating. What do you think would have been different, like, or could have been different, you know, back then had there been more conversations about it? What could would have helped, you know, at that stage? I think the more conversations would have meant that there would have been different levels of support. Mm. So unfortunately for me at the time, people knew, people were aware, but people didn't know how to to manage or support that. So mm-hmm. when you have, you know, your sports psychologists and you, even your dietitians and nutritionists, they didn't know how to support. It was better to, or easier, I guess, for them to just say, we'll deal with this later, you know. And, and I think because when you're talking about elite athletes, there is a component of nutrition that is very, very crucial to performance, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it was hard to... Well, I guess it was more blurred lines. And mm-hmm. so it was it was difficult for athletes like myself and the professional team of support staff around, like coaching and, and sports psychologists, to be able to identify that. And I think now what we're seeing is that there is more conversation around disordered eating and that that is quite rife among athletes, mm-hmm. male and female. And so what that does is it helps create then a support network to be able to say, okay, well, let's monitor this together. The shame is eased, so it's easier for athletes to be able to talk about that. And then that means that people can come in and you can have, you know, a a multi sort of approach when it comes to making sure that athletes are supported throughout that journey because Mm -hmm. we know it exists. We're not dismissing it and we're not saying that we can cure it. But how can we work together to make sure that athletes are, are able to focus on nutrition without it being the sole focus and being detrimental to their performance? I think that's what we're starting to see now. And I know that that would have made such a difference for me at the, at the time. I think there's also a lot of conflicting information as far as nutrition is concerned. If you want to be a runner, you've got to eat so much you're either overeating or you're undereating. you know you don't know who to listen to if you're thinner you run faster like those are sort of the you know messages that come mm-hmm. out and to date they do right and we have seen even amongst our peers and our athletes a lot of us it's not just me but like a lot of other athletes to date continue to suffer with eating disorders and I think to your point a proper support system for an elite athlete or a professional athlete or any athlete for that matter, with a psychologist, a proper nutritionist, is so important to ensure that they're, you aren't pressurizing them into something that they don't want to do and also making sure that their mental health is maintained in the process of elite sport, right? Yeah, there's a lot of more conversations happening, which I think are fantastic. You know, just the pressure that athletes are under. Yeah performing at an elite level and you mentioned before you know it's almost like this backwards you know thing with support like perform first and then get the support but you Mm. need the support to actually perform exactly (laughs) and I think that's why it is so complicated and so complex but I also think there's a it's a social issue as well because mm. you know the way the media portrays the performance of athletes and the way athletes look you know mm. is, is so unfair and then that creates i guess a stigma and an unfair conversation that happens in a societal level of what we the people sitting on the couch you know are, are making judgments based on the performance and the way athletes look and it's incredibly unfair so i think we all have a responsibility to ensure that 
we support the underdog and we put these incredible athletes on a pedestal, but then we're also the first to tear them down. And it's usually around those things. It's on, you know, they didn't perform as well as their last performance. And, you know, some of the commentary and feedback around what female athletes in particular are wearing, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's yeah. on field or in, it's just ridiculous. And, so ridiculous. and that has to change. But I do, the sad reality is I don't think that will change because this is how our society is operating and sort of always has, which is such a shame. So what do we do? We have to make sure that at least that the conversations are, are genuine and transparent and I think the more that that happens on every different level, the more we, we can create, uh, I guess, that support network that we want. But for other people to realise that we can't put this pressure on elite athletes because that pressure is already there. Mm-hmm. And, and although that elite athletes, you know, myself, we thrive on that. You know, of course we enjoy that yeah. that pressure. But at the same time, I don't think it's fair that then that same pressure extends after the performance or after you know the race I think that we have to be very careful with the conversations that are being had by you know even for me the conversations that I have with my children you know we're we're role models for these future generations and it's important those conversations that we're having and the expectations that we put on other people so I think it's it's a much much broader and more complex issue than than people realize. Mm-hmm, absolutely, it makes me chuckle. Some not chuckle, but like you know, when I look at armchair coaches, yeah, <laughs> discussing the performance of elite athletes or why did they do that, I'm like, yeah, you, you weren't on the field. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, exactly. You give it a go exactly. and see how you go. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the end of your swimming career, you are an advocate for inclusivity, disability awareness, and body image. How did that come about? Like from the and talk us through kind of you know, the decision to to step away from swimming and how that led into this new role. So the decision to step away from swimming was very much forced upon me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was at a stage where I had to walk away in order to continue living. And I know that sounds, you know, quite a lot, but that was the reality of no, it. Uh, totally understand you know, that. it was like this is it, for me at that point, it was it was life or death. Mm-hmm. And and so I had to make that grueling decision to say, okay, I, I'm retiring at the age of twenty two. And I found that I was, you know, I was being asked to come and talk and share my story as a Paralympian, motivational speaker. And I would go on stage and I would only share the parts of that journey that I thought the audience wanted to hear. Mm. So I wouldn't even tell them any of the the things that actually Mm -hmm. went on and any of the struggles because I didn't think that they wanted to hear that. And then I could... They just wanted the rosy picture. Yeah, exactly. Like, tell us how amazing it was Mm. and, and, you know, and how good it felt to to win this race. Oh, that's what you thought that And that's what I thought. And so I wanted to give them that, you know, I wanted the audiences to feel that. But then as time went on, I could sense that the audiences were starting to disengage. And the reason that was happening is because they could tell I was being disingenuous. You know, there was something about me. I'd lost that spark because I knew that I wasn't telling the full story. Mm-hmm. And then it so it was I was doing sort of the motivational talks on the side and I was also um, pursuing a career in uh, clinical research and I was working in oncology working with a lot of patients who were also explaining to me that the biggest hurdle that they were facing was their own body image issues and how their body had changed in many different ways. And so I kept being pulled back to to body image in in one way or another. And through my talks, I thought I'm going to start sharing the real 
story because I owe it to myself and I owe it to the audiences. And when I started to highlight the struggles that I was having around my own body image, having a disability, the eating disorders, and trying to figure out that side of my identity, there was a lot more engagement and there were a lot more callbacks. And I realized that I was able to, I guess, connect with people because, you know, I know this word vulnerability is quite sort of, you know, used a lot recently as a way to sort of, you know, engage and motivate people. But at the time, that's what was happening. I think it was the first opportunity I had to to share my truth. And it was through that, that there was something people could actually relate to. Mm-hmm. And so I saw an opportunity to use that as a way to motivate people. Not here we are, I've won a gold medal, but hang on a second, this is what I actually went through. And my story doesn't have the, the Hollywood and fairy tale ending that I think you expect. And through that, I think people were able to realize that, okay, so it didn't go to plan, but I was able to then move on and do things in the rest of my life based on what I had learned in that career. And so that's how I've been able to sort of do the work that I do now is that everything that I do today is because of what I learned Mm -hmm. in my time as a swimmer, you know, representing my country. And it has given me the skills I need around goal setting, around, you know, being determined in a way that allows me to also be flexible in business and as a wife and as a mother and I think that's something that more people can relate to and so then I sort of took a step away from the clinical research side of things and thought that if I could focus a little bit more on disability because for a few years after my career i didn't want to identify as Mm -hmm. having a disability because it was a really challenging time within society the way that the conversations around disability were moving that I also thought because of my disability having one arm I was still able to do pretty much everything right so that I felt created a bit of a disconnect for me within the disability community Mm -hmm. I felt as though I could do everything so I felt perhaps I was a fraud within that community. Mm. And I was told that in, in by some people as well. So here I am again thinking, I don't know where I fit. I mm. I certainly have struggles, physical and, and you know, mental and emotional well-being struggles, but I don't feel as though they're the same as somebody else who has a disability that is perhaps more severe than me. So what do I do? Where do I fit? I don't want to be speaking on behalf of everyone that has a disability. But then I discovered or, you know, realised that, my journey is my journey and I'm not here to compare that with anybody else and my struggles are very real but I also have a responsibility to share with the world that just because I live with a disability it doesn't mean that I have to limit myself and it doesn't mean that I have to accept the way that society and the world views me based on what they don't know about me but the only way that I can change those opinions is by stepping out of my own comfort zone and talking more about my own experiences And so everything I do today around, you know, being an author, being a speaker, being a consultant around disability and diversity and inclusion has sort of come again from that swimming experience. But it has given me the opportunity to now sit within a space where I know that it is a responsibility of mine to be a role model for for other people and for future generations and to, to talk the truth about my story in the hope that other people will find their own voice and the confidence to share theirs because I think it's through storytelling that we're able to create change in society and so if I can add my voice to the millions of stories that exist then I have to do that and and it's an honor and it's a privilege for me to be able to do that. 
This episode is supported by Deep Dive Dubai. We know that our listeners love awesome adventures. And take it from us, it doesn't get more awe-inspiring than the world's deepest pool. Measuring a record-breaking 60 meters, Deep Dive Dubai gives both scuba and freedivers the ability to discover an underwater world complete with the latest in dive technology and an abandoned sunken city. For those new to diving, like me, it's the ideal place to get started. And for those experienced to expert divers out there, it's the perfect place to hone your skills with exceptional facilities expert staff and state of the art technology since it opened in 2021 it has mesmerized visitors and continues to deliver extraordinary experiences 7 days a week for more information and to book your experience visit deepdivedubai.com i think for most people conformity is the easiest thing to accept and anyone who kind of moves beyond those four walls of conformity is just very hard to kind of digest as a person as an individual and as a concept so you were awarded the order of australia which is something that is conferred to australian citizens for their achievements and services to the community how do you feel that has furthered these efforts that you've taken in the areas of inclusivity and disability awareness Yeah, so the OAM is Australia's highest honor and it isn't something that a lot of females in history have been awarded, so I feel very very privileged. Um and again, an added responsibility. I never set out with the goal of creating social impact in that way or wanting those awards and accolades. It's something that has come as a result of the hard work which I'm very very grateful for. but it makes me realize that okay, this is this is what I was supposed to do mm-hmm. and now I have to keep keep working at it. And so you know, it has opened up I guess a few more doors on in the corporate world and it sort of validates the the work that I've been doing and I think that for me it was probably one of the proudest moments because I realized that everything that I'd gone through up until that moment was worth something and it was worth what it needed to be in order for me to to be doing what I'm doing now and so I take that you know with immense um gratitude and I feel very very humbled. And then you moved here to the UAE. Then I moved here to the UAE. <laughs> yes. Uh, when yeah. was that in 2019? Yeah, so the beginning of 2019 I relocated from Australia to Dubai and like most people we just my husband and I were like we'll come for 2 years and we'll <laughs> save heaps of money and then we'll go back. <laughs> and we realized now we won't save any money. Uh with three kids in school and just living such an amazing life here and I'm very very grateful to be here in the UAE and I have even you know further my career more since since being here which just is a testament to the support networks the the Emirati community the expat community I feel that as somebody with a disability or as a person of determination as it's referred to here I feel very supported in the work that I've been doing and that is something that I'm you know very very grateful for. Mm. So you moved from I we were speaking we before this, yeah, yeah i'm i moved from australia as well to the uae and you know australia's got a very strong sports culture sports mad country yes. everybody participates in sports sports fans so moving from you know a place like australia to the uae which has a, i think it's a really exciting time for sports mm. here you know when i i moved here 10 years ago it certainly didn't have the infrastructure it does have now and it's changing Do you remember kind of first landing and thinking, you know, what were your first thoughts when it came to sports, infrastructure access when you moved here, especially for people with disabilities? 
That's another really good question. So obviously that was on my radar straight Mm -hmm. away to see sort of what was available, what were the facilities like. And to be honest, I was really pleasantly surprised. I think, as you said, I arrived at such a perfect time. Mm. There's obviously been so much that has been happening in the last few years that has led us to this where we are today in the fact that there are so many facilities that are accessible. And I obviously sourced those out as well, Mm. you know, Um, and certainly for somebody with a disability, it has been amazing to see the the different groups that are, um, exist here in the UAE around a ver- variety of sports. I arrived um, 2019 just before the Special Olympics was held in Abu Dhabi. Yes. And so there was amazing conversations around that and after that. And that has sort of extended into where we are today that has sort of helped I guess, support and further enhance the both the Special Olympic movement and the Paralympic movement. And so I've been really, really happy to see how athletes with a disability in particular are supported here in the mm-hmm. UAE. And for myself as well, I mean, I arrived with two young children and then fell pregnant with my third. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as if I was in, you know, the the athlete world at that particular moment but it was obvious to me it wasn't as if it was difficult for me to find that information and I think that that is really important as well for somebody who might be relocating to this you know region to know that all of these things do exist and and I know you've said you know maybe 10 years ago the infrastructure wasn't there but it's really important to know that they've worked really hard on that and there are a lot of you know things available at the, the moment, which is really, really important. There's always room for improvement. Mm-hmm. There's certainly always room for improvement. Um, but I think that I also am happy to add my voice to that as well in a positive way and take on the responsibility to be able to bring some of the knowledge and the experience that I've had in Australia and and help um, with the UAE when it comes to athletes with a disability. And that's what I've sort of been doing with the organisation Touch is sort of making sure that these opportunities do exist for families and for people with a disability to be able to give them the opportunity to be introduced to, to sport and to exercise and physical movement that will not only benefit them as an individual but their families as well, their mental, physical well-being, everything. So, yeah, it's exciting times. It really is. I mean, one of our, you know, we're mission-driven and our mission is to help diversify the sporting mm. ecosystem. So it's really exciting to see, you know, organizations like Touch, like, you know, come about. How did, how, like, talk us through kind of the early stages when you were like, there's something here, we need to join together. And, you know, talk us through what Touch actually does as well. So Touch is an inclusive talent agency or talent management agency. That's how it started. So I wrote a series of children's books last year and I met with my friend Jean Winter and we sort of sat and thought, it's really important that we give other people with a disability the opportunity to share their story. So mm-hmm. I, you know, am able to do that through my platforms, whether it's on social media, whether it's through the children's books. But as I said earlier, we need to hear other stories. Mm -hmm. And so Touch came about as an opportunity to be able to support people with a disability to do that, whether that be through the spoken word, you know, as a motivational speaker, whether that be through written or poetry or through a skill set, whether that be through art. It didn't matter what it was. How could we make sure that people with a disability were able to share their story? And we, so we created Touch as, as a, I guess, a community of, of people with disability and their families to come together to learn from each other, to grow from each other. And as a sort of a side step from that, we wanted to be able to offer opportunities for 
people with a disability to be introduced to different sporting activities that perhaps they hadn't had the opportunity mm-hmm. to yet in the UAE. And so we've teamed up with some amazing organisations, Alioth um, CrossFit Gym, which every week uh, we have a community of uh, athletes, or I say athletes with a disability, they are athletes with a disability, who come together to do, you know, the, the CrossFit activities. And, you know, we now have swimming, we have yoga, we have squash. And these are all free activities that we offer to people with a disability who we've worked with with our partners here in the UAE to be able to do that. An incredible group of volunteers. And what it gives these people with a disability is the opportunity to enhance their skill sets, to be introduced to different sports, but it also gives the families an opportunity to be able to give their child another chance at something that they haven't had the opportunity to do. And and that's really important to mm-hmm. us. So touch is really about community, bringing the community together, explaining to the wider community what disability is, the opportunities that should be um, provided for, for people with a disability and and I guess educating the, the community here in the UAE. So a lot of the work that I focus on in touch at the moment is around the corporate understanding and the corporate uh, awareness around disability, employing more people with a mm-hmm. disability. But it's like a big circular, I guess, organisation in that, you know, how we support each other is, is, is like one big happy family. I think and one of the issues that we've heard very often about, you know, trying to incorporate, especially in big organisations and, you know, at the corporate level, is that it's usually to tick a box. Yes. Uh, representation or, you know, getting someone to the door, be it women, be it people with disabilities, is just to tick a box. They aren't doing anything that is actually taking advantage of the skill set that they can put forth. Uh, I just want to know with touch or with everything that you're doing, how do you change those conversations where there are people with disabilities or, you know, just anyone who is different from whatever society standards are, are gainfully employed or gainfully, you know, kind of a part of the room and the conversation. Yeah. So it's about a long term relationship Mm -hmm. and making sure that corporate organizations realize we're not here to tick a box. It's Mm -hmm. not just for a photo opportunity, but we want organizations and employers, employees to understand that disability does not mean wrong or incorrect or not able it means something different and it allows us to look at a different perspective to be able to offer these opportunities so at touch what we're doing is educating organizations and their staff to ensure that the client experience the customer experience is friendly and supported because once you're able to do that then we understand that that's an organization where people with a disability are welcomed and their family are welcome and so it's highly likely that then somebody with a disability would want to work at an organization like Mm -hmm. that and so then you create a space and an opportunity where somebody with a disability does feel safe they do feel supported and so part of touch is going in and educating organizations around this but supporting them throughout the whole process Mm -hmm. so we don't just come in and offer you know a a one-off workshop how can we help organizations embed this into their policies and procedures so that people with a disability are supported the whole way through that they're given the opportunity to enhance and and have promotions and not just work at back of house you know cleaning dishes you know we need to change this narrative as well Mm -hmm. is that people with a disability are very capable Mm -hmm. but if we can change that mindset of 
all staff, then it creates an organization that really excels and really and genuinely is promoting inclusion. And I think that, you know, as we've seen with gender equality, it now needs to happen with with disability. We need to make sure that disability has a place and a seat at the table, because if it doesn't, then it's not inclusion and Mm -hmm. it's not diverse. You know, you can't say we tick a box in these little areas and then not have disability. It doesn't work like that. And so, you know, initially there might be those tick the box opportunities where people that's the beginning and and what we're trying to do at touch is say okay let's go one step further let's make sure this is something where we can create change where we can support and add value to not just people with a disability but to everybody and I think that we've you know in the one year that touch has been around you know we've been able to do that we've had some incredible events and incredible opportunities that have come through the partners that we're working with and I think that that just speaks volumes of where the UAE is AE is at the moment and where we will be able to proceed in the future so it's really really fantastic and we're just here to make sure that everybody knows that disability is not wrong or right it's just different and if we don't have that component in all aspects of our reality then you know, I think we're the ones that miss out. There's so much strength in diversity, you 100%. know, like just enrichment for everyone. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and I think that's one of the things we probably all love about the UAE is how diverse it is. Yes. So, you know, let's just not talk about it and kind of what the way it's always been talked about, you know, where you're from or your gender or anything, but extend that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You've, um, you represent a lot of elite athletes at the moment through touch. And also, you know, you've probably come across a lot of them. At the top of this conversation, you also spoke about the struggles that you faced as an elite athlete, whether it be at the Paralympic Games or just through your journey into elite sport. Tatiana McFadden, who was also at the same games that you were in 2004, after those games, she spoke about how it was so hard for them as elite athletes because they didn't get the same, you know, they they didn't have the same price purse, they didn't have the same resources. But since then, you know, what changes have you seen in the elite scene? And is it moving at the right pace or can more be done to kind of further, further this conversation? I think more can always be done, but there has been an incredible surge in the support, whether that be financially or even just the way the stories are told in the media over the last few years. For example, in Australia, after Tokyo, Paralympic athletes for the first time in history were paid if they won a gold, silver or bronze. Now, historically, Australian Olympians have been paid always. Mm -hmm. So to now see that change is quite profound. There was obviously a part of me that was like, oh, my goodness, you know, I wish this had happened so much sooner. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a reflection on where society is at. And I think that you have to make sure that we're seeing both those perspectives, because if something's not happening in society, it won't happen in sport and vice versa. It's Mm -hmm. a reflection of of where things are at. And so, you know, just the way the the media has been portraying athletes with a disability, whether it's the Paralympics or the Special Olympics, over the last few years has been incredible. You know, there's a for anyone listening, there's an incredible uh, documentary on Netflix. Um, oh my goodness, it's called The Rising Phoenix, mm. and it is a it follows the story of elite Paralympians from where where they've come from to you know representing their country, and it is quite incredible. And things like that that just would never have been 
something that people would have been talking about, you know, mm-hmm. when I was competing. There wouldn't have been the funding to, or the interest to be able to do a documentary on athletes with a disability. You know, I, we were told that so many times. And so I think that it has been um, quite a profound change over recent years and something that I'm really proud of. And, and I'm excited for athletes that are yet to come because it changes the conversation. It changes where the funding is given in regards to, you know, coaching and psychologists and support staff after athletes retire as well, which is something that I never had. And so to see how that is is changing and giving more opportunities for athletes with a disability, I think is is so fantastic. I think it's about, you know, when you think about funding and stuff, it's really an investment, right? Absolutely. It's investing in, you know, athletes and athletic performance and supporting them. And I think, you know, like anything you see a proper investment into, it thrives, right? Yeah. So I'm or glad to see Otherwise that, it cracks. Yeah. yeah. And I'm glad to see that it's finally changing, but I'm like, there's so much more opportunity as well, mm. be it women's sports you know, people with disabilities and Paralympians and Special Olympics, like just needs more investment. Exactly. And I think we're slowly getting there, but even to know, you know, that there's still female athletes around the world who don't have a disability that, you know, are not being paid the same amount or are not being given the same opportunities yeah. mm-hmm. as male athletes, you know, it is really, really disappointing. So yes, we do have a long way to go. And I think that will we see that in our lifetime? realistically probably not right if we know that gender equality won't happen in our lifetime you know we have to be realistic and realize Mm -hmm. that we we probably won't see that in sport in our lifetime but it doesn't mean we stop the fight it doesn't mean that we don't remain driven to be able to create change for the future because I want my daughter if she decides later in life that she wants to pursue a career in any given sport that she's going to be supported whether Mm -hmm. that be emotionally financially it doesn't matter I want to make sure that those resources and that foundation has been built and so it's my responsibility to, in this generation, to make sure that that happens. Yeah, so the wheels are turning. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So given all that you're doing to raise awareness for the community and make sports more inclusive, have you gone back to swimming at all? Have you kind of reignited that love now in a new context and kind of, you know, after you've processed and... I wouldn't say that I love swimming. Mm. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with the swimming pool and it took me years to be able to dive back in. And that mm-hmm. was due to a whole range of different anxieties. But I've always loved physical activity and and moving my body. So I used to sprint. I was a 50-meter freestyle, 100 freestyle, 100 butterfly. But ironically now I've decided to embark on a new challenge and take up running. And I've signed up for a marathon, which is just, in my mind, completely absurd. Um, Where are you doing this marathon? I'm doing the marathon in Paris. So I figured if I'm going to do a marathon, I need to do it in the most scenic place possible. But, you know, it's been really interesting. I haven't competed for for many years. You know, my children are seven, five and three. And that's been my focus for, for these past years. But now that I'm training under a coach and that I have a bit of support from, you know, like other organizations, it's been really interesting to see how my mind quickly shifts back to that competitive mm. side, you know, and that <laughs> um, was there lying dormant. Exactly. You know, and, and, and we, t- we talk about this as women as wearing so many different hats. Mm. And I remember one of my coaches said, I will always be a Paralympian. I will always be an athlete, maybe not right now, but that will always be there. And so I've always remembered that, you know, that you, you, you I mean, the conversations about having it all and doing it all, you know, I, I really don't always like, mm. you know, the tone and how that's sort of portrayed. But I think the message is, is that whatever we want to do, we can, if we have the right resources, we have the right support, we can make that happen. 
but perhaps not all at the exact same time. So now with training for this marathon, being able to go back to that mindset of knowing how to set these goals, knowing how I have to rearrange different things in my life to ensure that I'm able to do the training and make sure that that happens while managing everything else is actually something that I'm really proud of. And Mm -hmm. I know that is always there. And that again comes from those swimming days and then those formative years as an athlete when I was much younger and something that I'm actually really excited to be able to show to my children you know they say to me now oh, are you going for a run mum?" and I'm like yeah I am and I, I think that that's something really positive for them to see mm-hmm. that I'm able to set myself this goal later in life you know I'm, I'm 38 and so it, setting out with a marathon it was definitely tick the box midlife crisis type <laughs> sort of thing um, but it's been really really nice journey to to apply myself again to something and to put some relevance and some importance on something that's not so much career focused mm. but it's something that I want to do purely for you exactly yeah. and and as a mother um, you know I, it's even more important I think because you know parenting takes up so much of my time and energy and and in a good way not in a, not in a bad way but sometimes you know it's so easy to get lost in all of that that being able to have something now to apply myself to and to focus on while still obviously being a mum and running a business you know it's it's giving me more energy than it's taking for mm-hmm. sure Afshan and I can both relate to loving that whole journey yeah. you know going in like I was just complaining before I'm so tired but when my race ends i'll miss it you know i'll miss that whole experience and i need to think of something else you know in the future um and i love you know i think you're absolutely 100 percent. you know these conversations about having it all i started to look at life as in seasons you know sometimes you have uh, this is my sports season or this is my work Mm. season and you have to dial up and down and you know whatever priorities that you have at the moment yeah Yeah, exactly and I think that that's something that women should be talking about you know more because also even around the conversations of having a family and having children not every female wants to do that nor Mm. should they be pressured to do that there should be the support to for women to choose exactly who whatever whatever they want to do and what they want to be and where they focus their time and energy and so you know I've always been of the mindset that I'm here to support women in whatever it is that they want to do Uh, you know I'm very happy um, having three children they're exhausting and beautiful and all of that (laughs) sort of stuff Um, but I do know that for me what's most important is that I'm the best role model that I can possibly be for my daughter and my two sons especially in the world that they're growing up in now I think that that is really really important is that you know I can apply myself and dedicate myself and that they can see that those qualities are are really really important for whatever it is that they choose to do and that I'm there to support is that why you developed the children's book yes it was kind of like a a legacy in many ways to Mm. share my story with them in a fun way and to hope that that would ignite many conversations for my own children but for children everywhere around difference and diversity and disability and to be able to extend that to to parents and the wider community doesn't matter you don't have to be a parent or a child to be able to read these books it's just a beautiful story that happens to be about a main character that has one arm and I think if we can add books like this and resources like this to every library and to every school around the world it does and I don't like to use this word normalize but it does normalize those conversations and if we can be having those conversations at a much younger age I hope that it then creates a level of self-confidence and self-awareness in children so that when they do get to the years that we all know are really challenging they have 
enough resilience and perseverance within themselves to be able to know who they are and to stand proud and tall within their own identity whatever that might be so that's why these books for me are so important is that it just adds a different element and and hopefully it it's a conversation starter for topics that you know have been taboo and have been a little bit difficult for for families to have and at the end of the day just that there's a little girl with one hand as a main character. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, like I said, there was no representation Mm -hmm. in media. And certainly in children's books, you know, there was very much this sort of Disney princess fairy tale story. And I think if we can create a narrative that's a little bit more realistic so that children everywhere can say, oh, that character looks like me or that character looks like the little boy or girl at school that also has one hand and then that's it and the conversation doesn't have to be too complex it doesn't have to be too deep it just is what it is Mm -hmm. and I think if we can do that for children then that's going to have a profound impact on their later years. Jessica you've done and achieved a lot you've gone through adversities it's shown a fair bit of stubbornness a word that you use for yourself just to create the path that you have created and a lot of grit so would you say that for you grit itself is innate or something that life's pretty much taught to you along the way I think it's a bit of both I think somewhere along the way you know, when I was younger, there was something innate inside of me that wanted to push the boundaries and to fight back, even though I was very reserved and very shy and and cautious, there was something already there. And I think over the years, due to the different challenges and adversities that I've been faced with, it sort of enhanced that or it sort of, you know, let it erupt at different times. And so, yeah, stubbornness and grit, I think, go hand in hand when I talk about that in relation to myself you know it's being able to know when to set my own boundaries when to say no because obviously we all struggle with that but certainly for me it's been something that um, I've had to work at and now I think I'm quite good at but in a respectful way you know and in 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 a way that isn't egotistical but it's about self you know protection as well in many Mm. ways and again the role model how do I want my children to see me how do I hope that they will see themselves and if that it comes down to being able to be firm but be grounded and be polite and respectful then I think you know I'm happy with that yeah I think it's about owning your story too you know like when you were saying about those initial talks that you gave and people were kind of tuning out a little and you could see that yeah about that level of authenticity Mm. and yeah, we're so thankful for you to join us today. Is there anything, anything that we, any last word? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm really grateful. I think yeah. these conversations are so important. You know, mm. women in sport and men in sport need to know that this is a, an environment and an opportunity for everybody to thrive and excel. And we need to support each other to do that. So, yeah, I'm just very grateful to be able to, to be part of the conversation. Great. And where can people find out more about you and touch? Okay, please follow me on Instagram at jessicasmith27. Uh, Instagram for touch is just touch to buy. And yeah, I'd love to be able to to connect and continue chatting. Great. We'll put all of that in the show notes. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jessica. My pleasure. pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we ask that you please share it with family, teammates, friends and even frenemies, or share via social media. Please also leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Five stars only. And visit us on themetalset.com for more stories and resources. Thanks again for listening. Your support means the world to us. This is The Metal Set.